everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around, drinking tasty beverages, and talking about writing, publishing, researching, the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that do not agree, but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Chaz and Karen Brenchley, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 140, Interview with Denise Tanaka. Welcome, Denise. Hello, Jeannie, and thank you so much for having me. This is a real pleasure. Well, it's an absolute delight. Denise is in a writing group, The Flying Cars, with myself and Karen. And we ha- you gave us the very great pleasure of reading an early version of your new released book, Intangible. And I loved it all to bits. And now it's there, it's live, and people can buy it. And this is so exciting. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, your, your comments really helped me shape it up from the first draft into now the final version that I'm so happy is released into the world. Ah, can't wait. I bought a copy, so it'll be on its way to my mom, who, you know, needs all of these things. (laughs) (laughs) How did you discover this topic? I mean, tell everybody a little bit about the book at first. This is an interesting discussion of turn of the century, man from Japan in America meets Mary's, falls in love with American woman. It's such an interesting... It never happens, right, Chaz? (laughs) (laughs) It's... Yeah, so it I kind of stumbled across it by accident while I was researching my previous nonfiction book, Lady in White, and I was scanning over a bunch of digitized newspapers on the Library of Congress website. And down at the bottom of the page, I saw my own name, Tanaka, and a little headline, Seattle woman becomes wife of Japanese artist. And it talked about how, you know, back then, racial marriage between whites and orientals or whites and blacks or anything was very not usual (laughs) so i went wow it's like a hundred years ago what a different experience they had versus the experience i had when i met a japanese man in college and we fell in love and got married so i just started digging into them and i wanted to find out what was similar and what was different what was their experience and I went down a rabbit hole of research, finding out about it. I learned so much about both, it's a history of women's rights, it's a history of interracial relations, it's a mm-hmm. history of politics in America and then on the global stage all in one. For instance, the the blindingly one that is sat off, and I've told probably a hundred people since then is, did you know once upon a time that if a woman married a man not from America, she would lose her citizenship? And mm-hmm. young girls today stare at me, you're shitting me, that no way, what? <laughs> Yes, that was very true. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, just the the opening of what did you learn about women at the turn of the century in America that caught you by surprise? Yeah, I think that was one of the issues, the legal things that, you know, so as soon as she married him, she lost her citizenship and was then a Japanese wife. Did she ultimately become a Japanese citizen? I think so, because then later on, they left and went to Paris, and she had to apply for a Japanese passport. Yes, okay. Yeah, so she probably went through the process that I went through, like, 
we sent my name over to be registered in mm. the family kind of the register they don't really have birth certificates over there they just kind of keep a family chart uh -huh. and then a, a man gets married they add the wife or they add the children uh -huh. into the same ledger book what? so there isn't really That's an individual yes that's interesting. I mean, there there's so much things you start to take for granted. Oh, surely everybody does birth certificates in every country. And yet I'm starting to think that's really, really not the case. No. And then when you're thinking about is you'd have a history, you have other historical biographies out there. I mean, Lady in White, Truth and Cinder's Wish and a Star. When you're writing historical biography, how do you make decisions just on how you're going to structure it? I mean, I loved your book, um, Intangible, just because you made it story-like enough that you took me with you. It wasn't dry. It was it was in there. It had it didn't tell you what people were feeling, and yet you had a beautiful way of implying things that let the reader infer feelings and emotions. Oh, thank you. So I was really fortunate in this particular project that so much of their own material was available. Like some of Yasushi Tanaka's, the artist, he wrote a lot of letters to an art dealer in San Francisco. So I was able to go to the Young Museum and read those on microfilm. And also his wife, Louise, was a writer and some of her books are still on Google Books, some of her poetry, some of her letters. And I just started finding materials in their own words. And I wanted to give them voices as much as possible rather than me trying to speak for them, to let them speak from the page after 100 years. How do you find out what archive holds what records? Yes, that I put together some of my like researching skills, some of my, I've been a genealogy hobbyist for about 30 years and some of it is you know the google books interlibrary loans world catalog and i would start with one book like there was a book i got called like you know asian american artists that was a general book and you go to the bibliography and you start finding their sources and then one thing leads to another yeah the internet helped a lot to find mm -hmm. Of course it does. Yeah, so it's it's like it's like backtracking rather rather than following clues, following from a first clue to a result. You're following from the result backwards to the first clue. Yes, like oh, one specific example I can hmm. mention. So in one of their interviews that was published in a Seattle newspaper, they mentioned that they were friends with this guy, an Arctic explorer. Wilhelmer uh, Stephenson, I think his name is. And so I Googled him and found out that because he was a famous Arctic explorer, some college had his notes and papers and all that. So I went to that college's website, their digital archives, all of his papers. Did he mention them? Yes, he did. And I emailed, asked for copies, and I got all the letters that they ever exchanged between the Arctic Explorer and my artist and his wife. That's well, magic. That's, that's cool. That's yeah. really cool. I, is, is that a service you have to pay for, or do they just do that for you? Yeah, often research librarians are extremely helpful. They are wonderful. 
And if they charge a research fee, it's usually very small, like $15, $20. Okay, cool. Something like that. Often if it's something digital, they just share it with me and say, just give me credit. And I'm like, thank you very much. I can do that. That's nifty. So and there seems like there's such a, a volume to find and dig out to to find, because not only then you're, re, you're researching about the individuals, but notes about the time. How do you how do you organize all of the pieces to sew them all together? I mean, I, you looked up things like what was legislature of the time and who was a judge in this area at the time and who else was down there at the time. It's it's fantastic, the work of it. But how do you how do you keep all that together? Well, I had a very big box and a lot of folders on my hard drive. I think I looked at it the other day to count. I have over a thousand files in my folders on my hard drive, but I would just categorize them into pieces, you know, per someone's name or someone's time period or the location. I have one big bucket for Seattle, one big bucket for Paris, one big bucket for Japan. And I just broke it down inside there and I guess I don't know how it got organized I kept shuffling things around as you know from the first draft to this one how to weave it together how to change the chronological order of things yeah um, that's that's what I was going to ask how do you how do you go about taking a thousand separate files of information and making a book out of them. Where, where, I mean, where, where do you start structurally? Once I had everything together and I kind of had an outline in my head, I would just take it piece by piece, you know, bird by bird as the saying goes. <laughs> and so I'd be like, okay, today I'm going to write the chapter about whatever happened to his childhood. How did he arrive in Seattle? And I would just focus on that one part, yeah. you know, and whatever happened to them when she went to New York or her first husband and how did that fall apart? And so it's like day by day, one thing at a time and just gradually it, the, the Legos kind of pile up on each other. But, um, do, you, do you try and tackle the book from beginning to end or do you just write these individual chapters and then decide what order they ought to go in? The second one, yeah, I had a bunch of individual chapters and that made it easier to sort of shift them around. Yes. So you're, you're rearranging the supper table and maybe, maybe you're going to put the dish of potatoes over here and the green peas go over here and then you switch it back around and whichever. I know people who write novels that way and I do not understand them at all. <laughs> I, want, I, have, I, have, I had a friend back in Newcastle, um, and I went up to her study one day. Um, she, she, well, her office, her studio, whatever, she, she, kept, she kept a writing room in, in the city rather than working at home. Um, and, and I went in one day and she was sitting on the middle of the floor, surrounded by very small heaps of paper, many of them, in tears, literally. And this was her first novel. And she couldn't work out what order all these pieces should mm. go in. And so I, I helped as much as I could, which is not very much because 
I write a book from beginning to end, yada, yada, yada. And, and then she sold it for magnificent amounts of money and it was a bestseller and, and, and I loved her dearly. It's a totally strange process to me, but I think I can understand it in a non-fiction context where mm. in fiction it just makes no sense at all. Well, here's a question that kind of piles on that for you, Denise. How did you make a decision about the voice of third person, first person, retelling versus a story versus an accounting? I mean, there's there's a lot of ways that you can tell a biography. How did you pick? I guess I picked what would seem natural to me. I wanted the feeling of like me sitting on a couch talking to one friend and saying, hey, look at these really interesting people I found and let me tell you about them. And I didn't want to do like a, a cheesy sort of, uh, what do you call it? Like a movie of the week where I would dramatize and try to make up dialogue. I wanted more to say like, hey, here's what I found and let me tell you what their voices said. Okay, so the way you say that, it sounds like you you wanted to be present yourself within the reader's experience rather than sort of standing back as a distant author and 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 just you're there as a storyteller yeah yeah to some degree because this particular project felt so personal to me like every step of the way i saw parallels to my own life yeah do you draw those parallels in the book or was this just a thing you kept to yourself you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, haven't, I'm, I haven't read it objectively, but yeah, I think I, I tried to insert some of, or at least my viewpoint would come across but, in what I choose to tell or what I choose not to yeah. tell. I think. That's cool. I think there's such a huge importance of telling stories and biographies and these kind of nonfiction things because we can all get very myopic with life-changing every day and what's the new tweet what's the new outrage what's the new joy what's the new thing and looking backwards people don't really realize how far we've come and mm -hmm. how much better things are and sometimes you need to read a little bit of these kinds of histories that make it intensely personal I think there's there's not a female, I think, that could read your book. And when everybody else, if anybody else wants to argue with me afterwards, could give it a try. But a female that could read this that looked at it and said, wow, I don't really want to go back and live in history anymore. I like being a girl of today, right? <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, okay, so, so if we can go back a bit, you said things you chose to tell and things you chose not to tell. Were there, were there aspects of your subjects' lives that you deliberately left out of the book? And if so, why? Yes, I think there was not too much that I left out, but I know there was one particular phrase in one of their interviews published in the newspaper mm -hmm. where they kind of went on and on about something really weirdly racial Oh, wow. <laughs> but, yeah and so I thought that sounds really dated mm -hmm. <laughs> and let's maybe you know yeah, not you have them say this <laughs> I, I think that's another one of those when, that when we're looking back and 
people can say, oh, well, this person was extremely racist is like, well, this is 1700s things that mm -hmm. are extreme now and you know they're different this is this is 1901 and i think it's important the way that you are or is it 1910 i forget i remember there was a 19 and a one in it somewhere around, let's see they got married in 1917 oh, okay. so it's still right before world war one right but yeah even though they were trying to sound enlightened they were still saying something about like anthropology and this or that and I went, no, this this just comes across as odd. <laughs> exactly. And in World War II as well, like we know it didn't start <laughs> later. It started much earlier for Europe. And I loved how you talked about the artist communities in general. Like there are many ways that they can say who was retreating from what country in, in an artist community because they're let's just say personal lifestyles or beliefs or commitments or dedication to an art don't fit in their native region. So you want to go to find a place where you are accepted and loved and welcomed. And I, I feel that can resonate with people even today that maybe if you want to be this and you were born in a place where that's not encouraged or allowed or is facing a lot of difficulty yeah moving to find your own there's there's more to belonging than just kith and kin and blood that there's very much the the artist community there's supportive artists there's you can find it online but sometimes people move and i love that you had talked about the movement in paris and how people were going to paris and why pa talk to us about paris for those that don't know what a big deal it was in the art scene wow that I just sort of had originally a vague idea about it. Like there was Hemingway and there was the great Gatsby fellow ex Scott Fitzgerald. But I did not know that Paris was like the place that everybody went to, to experience creative freedom. So there was a huge Asian art community. There was all sorts of writers and they would just go hang out at the cafes and the clubs and talk to each other and share ideas. A lot of the poets and a lot of the literature of the 20th century came out of there. And it's just a shame that when the Nazis invaded that that all came crashing to a halt. Yeah. Well, there's still a fair number and there's, there's something that is still happening today in modern times. For instance, for people that are not, let us say, cis and heterosexual, there are still many countries that are not welcoming to that as a governmental program that find their way to other places saying, okay, I want to, you know, if it's me, I want to kiss girls and play hockey. Maybe I'm going to go over to America or Canada where that's kind of okay. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. yes. I, saw, I saw a lovely um, article going around today saying, why are there so many Team America hockey girls marrying Team Canada hockey girls? Apparently it's a thing. Well, it's because um, our captain married their captain a few years back. And I, I, I know that, but but it's it's become a thing. Um, a lot of them are doing it, apparently, and I love that. There's, um, there's part of me that wondered if they were, like, ordered not to talk about this in the Beijing Olympics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. Or, um, please don't kiss each other on television. 
Let's not do that, guys. Um, 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 Denise, I, it yeah. occurs to me that we've been talking about your book and around your book for quite some time now. Um, can you give us like a sort of two-paragraph summary of the lives of the people you were writing about? Because I don't think we've touched on what who they actually were and what. Oh, yes. Okay, so it's on this couple. Uh, the artist from Japan, Yasushi Tanaka, was a young man who came out of Japan, went to Seattle, studied art. And then while he was there gaining local prominence as an artist, he met this woman who was a Seattle native. And she was a little bit older. She had been married and divorced once before. And she'd come back from New York kind of to start over and reinvent herself. And the story when they first met was very touching, but she went to one of his art lectures and she thought, oh my God, here is the man who is saying the things I've been thinking and the philosophy of art and all those just, they suddenly felt like they clicked. They're thinking the same thoughts and they got married and tried to make a go of it in Seattle, but the art community really gave him a hard time for having shows and being Asian, mm -hmm. being a mixed marriage. So they finally had enough of the criticism there and they decided to go to Paris where he really blossomed. He was in a lot of shows and a lot of galleries. He was selling his paintings to some of the, the nobles and the royals and the elites over there. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's a shame that then World War II happened. Yeah. And he sadly, like, passed away from tuberculosis. Oh. It's not a spoiler for y'all. But, <laughs> but, then she, but his widow, his, then she it's history, stayed and she, she kept all of his paintings in that little apartment and held on to them. And then after she passed away, then, then they were able to go back to a museum in Japan where it's all over there now. Oh, excellent. And I love when you when you say they got married, did you keep in the part where they tried to get married in Seattle, but no judge in Seattle would marry them? And then, so they traveled south through Portland and they couldn't get married in Portland and it took all the way down to San Francisco. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think I went through both them and also a similar couple a few years before who also like, because of the laws of the time and frowning on this mixing of the races, ooh, mm. like they had to go before a judge and plead their case and go, really, you know, this isn't just a frivolous thing. We really are going to make a go of it. Please let us get married. And they had to get a special judge's order to let them get married. Wow. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. In um, particular, people in Oregon like to forget that Oregon was whites only until 1926. Was it really? Yeah. I had no idea. Oh, Good Lord. That was, um, they were whites only, and it still, <laughs> they, they said, like, in, by 2019, it's still 87% white. It is very much the, yes, you get to the, the Portland, it's very you know, rural, but once you get out, it it has a little bit of that. There were a lot of Mormons that ended up in Oregon 
Mm -hmm. So when you say it was whites only, does that mean that people of colour were not allowed across the state border or that you just couldn't live there? Uh, Basically, it was free blacks were not welcome. So this was, I think it was something like Oregon State Constitution 1857. No free Negro or mulatto not residing in the state at the time of the adoption shall come, reside, or be within the state, hold any real estate, make any contracts, yada, yada, yada. Okay, I I had no idea. That's obviously appalling. (laughs) Well... Yes, but this was at a time when our nation was trying to figure out of what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. And the I want to also say that Oregon rejected slavery within their borders. Oh, okay. Well, that's a well. Obviously, if they weren't allowing black people at all, there will be no black people. <laughs> that's exactly it. Yes. Um. 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 Denise. Yes. I, I'm not familiar with Tanaka's work. Um. Did he keep anything of a Japanese aesthetic in his? Um, Not so much. I think when he came to Seattle and he was trying to learn the Western style and when he went to Paris, even more so. So he was kind of, he played around with other impressionist styles, but then he developed sort of like a very traditional impressionist, lots of light, lots of color and lots of, nudes which were some of his hottest sellers that's, it. <laughs> I was say, that's why you did art back then <laughs> so you could paint the naked people and you know yes. sell them for lots of money but it so, was art. so to put on exactly lots, lots and lots of naked people but he had a way of like twisting the females into weird positions so like some of them if you google it you can see it they're curled up like in a snail position or like curled up with their heads tucked into their legs. Like they'd almost don't even look human. Sometimes the way he's got them turned around or facing the other way. There's a fine tradition of Japanese bondage that goes that way. I wonder if that was a hangover. Hmm. Well, if so, they never talked about whatever they did in there. People didn't used to write about their personal sexuality that much. So, no, not until Henry Miller, but that was later. Did anything surprise you while you were in the process of researching any of this? Besides the Japanese bondage. Besides (laughs) the Japanese bondage. Thank you, Jazz, for bringing that up. I don't know if I was surprised by any one thing in particular. I think all of these details surprised me just learning about early Seattle or learning about Paris, learning about how many Asian artists were thriving and were popular at the time and who are now unknown completely. So everyone sees the Van Gogh exhibits, everyone sees the Monet exhibits, but you know, you don't see Tanaka or you don't see his biggest competitor at the time, Mr. Fujita. <laughs> Who also did lovely nudes. So were they were they not seen not just in the West, but were they forgotten in Japan too? Or were they ever known in Japan? Ah, uh, yeah, because that that's also Yasushi's Tanaka's problem was that his paintings were basically kept in storage by his widow until after her death in the 60s. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's being rediscovered. Right. Oh. Um, do, do, we, do we know why she did that? I think just finances. Like, it costs a lot of money to ship six-foot canvases that are framed. And sure. she had over 200 of them. So... Can confirm was, shipping paintings is really expensive. Yeah. Yeah. But she, I mean, and she didn't know where to send them. Yeah, well, that, that was the question. I mean, could could she not find a dealer who would take them and sell them? But if she chose not to do that, then, you know, that's her thing. I also really liked within your story that, you know, Yasushi Tanaka encouraged his wife's authorship and her creativity too, that we have an illusion in the past that, oh, men were this, and once women got married, they, that's, they did nothing else. But you gave me a sense that he was actively encouraging her art and her craft too. And I thought that was kind of heartwarming. Yes, very much. So he, he was, even though he lived 100 years ago, I think he was very modern that way. That he was supporting her writing and her lecturing and we haven't, we haven't we haven't talked about her. What I mean, what did she write? What was her metier? She died in a lot of things. I think she, when she was younger, she wrote a book of poetry and she wrote a one act play. And she didn't really um, achieve much success, which I blame on her first husband, who clearly did not support her in any of this. Uh, she turned to journalism. So she started interviewing writers and authors and later became an art critic. So probably because of her writing, she also helped to support Yasushi by critiquing his things, getting critiques of his paintings published in like international art journals. And And journalism was very, very male dominated. So our hats off to her for pushing into it and sticking with it. Yes. And she became very good as an art critic and an art analysis. Like, also, you know, if she had had a degree, she probably could have been a famous professor. But again, being a woman and college degrees were hard to come by for women, mm-hmm. all of her knowledge just became informal. Well, people are writing right now that educating women is going to ruin marriage because, you What's know. That? Yes. Mm-hmm. I've always said it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Liar pants. Now, this is, Denise, this is really neat. And I love that you do, you've gone so deep in all of your stories when you do historical fiction. What are you working on now? Or is it mostly the publication and getting excited and showing this book with the world? What do you, what's your next project going to be? Uh, my next project is even more personal to me. My father told me years ago that one of his aunts was murdered. But it has taken many, many years of genealogy research to Mm -hmm. discover who she was, where it happened, and what happened. Because their name was very common. John Wilson was my grandfather. (laughs) So try looking for Wilsons, who was a bricklayer. And it took many years to find her. But I found her. And I'm writing the true crime story of what really happened when my grandmother's sister was murdered. 
Oh wow, that's amazing. Um, and, and are you going to come to a different conclusion than the police and the courts did? That might be um, probably <laughs> it's a totally unsolved mystery. Oh really? Don't know. Okay. No one knows who did it. What? So I have some theories. <laughs> yeah. Do Do you think do you, Do you feel confident that you will find what you think is a credible solution? Not to the solution of who killed her, because too yeah. much time has passed and we will never know. But I can at least speak to how it affected the family and how yeah. it affected the town. And what the an interesting juxtaposition yeah. of true crime and historic research, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, yeah, the, the unsolved crime is too seldom written about, I feel. Yes. That's fascinating. We will put links to Denise's stories and books and the other interesting things mentioned on the website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Denise, thank you. This was great. And I am so thrilled that we could share your book with people. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was just a delightful talk. And everybody should go right out and buy Intangible right now. It's fabulous by Denise Tanaka. By Denise B. Tanaka. Denise B. Tanaka. And just so everybody else knows, Denise B. Tanaka and Denise Tanaka on Amazon are the same chick, so all of her stuff is good. <laughs> yes, buy it all. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Lingberg. You can hear more from Michael Lingberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Whatever Wine Chaz is Drinking Tonight, and Kenny, always at the Bean Scene Coffee. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs>